Welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today, we are so pleased to have Nathan Fish and Summer Hayes, associates at Greenbird Trowig in Dallas, Texas, as presenters for our webinar for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. Nathan counsels healthcare clients on a wide range of regulatory issues, including fraud and abuse, marketing, Medicare, Medicaid enrollment, and reimbursement, and licensure. Nathan also has wide-ranging experience with healthcare transactions, internal investigations, and compliance reviews, and government enforcement actions, investigations, and audits. Nathan concentrates his practice on the following areas, healthcare compliance programs, transactional due diligence, healthcare regulatory matters, and healthcare industry acquisitions. Summer Hayes represents healthcare providers in all manners of regulatory, transactional, administrative, and litigation matters, including advising clients regarding federal fraud and abuse laws, such as Stark and anti-kickback statutes, advising clients responding to investigations, and advising clients regarding establishing and maintaining compliance programs. Prior to entering private practice, Summer was a registered nurse in various hospital and outpatient settings. She has broad experience with both the clinical elements of the healthcare industry, as well as practical business elements of providing those clinical services in a highly regulated environment. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Nathan, Summer, go ahead. All right, well, thank you so much for having us today. and. Um, going to kind of talk through the lay of the land these days and the enforcement of federal and state health care laws. Um, we understand that you guys have a varied background and so we're going to try to strike a, strike a middle ground with sort of going over the basics of the statutes and some of the players um, and then leave some time at the end to talk about case law and some of the recent um, enforcement actions that um, have sort of changed the landscape in some ways for those of us in the uh, in the provider space, um, and then also wrap up with some questions if you guys um, have any questions for Nathan and myself. Um, kind of just to start out, we're going to kind of walk through the players just to make sure everyone is um, on the same page as far as those persons involved in enforcing the various healthcare laws on both the federal and state level. We, you know, have the Department of Justice. It kind of comes in at the top, and we have all the local district attorney's offices. You're probably very familiar with the Office of the Inspector General, um, the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. 
Um, various Medicaid state agencies are involved. There is a uh, TRICARE management authority that you may um, hear, hear about from time to time in enforcement actions, federal and state contractors, um, licensing boards. A lot, of, um, a lot of the focus has been on whistleblowers and some of the um, cases that have come to light based on their, um, their inside knowledge into the different providers and suppliers. And then I think the one we kind of want to start out focusing on just due to some recent happenings are the commercial special investigative units. Um, so Nathan, you want to kind of bring us up to speed there? Sure. Um, recently, in the last few years, uh, SIUs, as they're called, have, have become pretty active. And uh, PBMs have them, and then commercial, uh, other commercial insurers will have them internally. And what these units do is, uh, it varies, but uh, frequently what they'll do is audit um, claims or audit um, supporting document documentation or even audit ownership of, uh, for example, pharmacies. And uh, they have the ability within their, within their private um, insurer entity to suspend payments, to uh, trigger recoupment, uh, and they can be very disruptive. And the, uh, the unfortunate part is there's very limited uh, appeal rights. There's a, uh, typically an internal appeal that the uh, payer will allow, but uh, really that's the payer just rubber stamping what their SIUs already determined. So there's, it's, it's very difficult to um, overcome um, an adverse determination by an SIU if one ever does occur. And I, I, I just further note that licensing boards are, they appear to be getting a little more active with um, enforcing uh, fraud and abuse. I mean, it's not, it's not every day, but you do see some activity uh, in Texas and Oklahoma, for example, in the last couple of years where uh, boards that had previously uh, not wanted to touch uh, fraud and abuse related issues are suddenly willing to uh, discipline physicians, for example, and pharmacy owners for um, uh, practices that uh, potentially run afoul of, of fraud and abuse laws. Okay. We're going to kind of walk through now some of the, the big statutes, um, I think starting with one that we're all familiar with, but kind of going into a little bit more detail, uh, the anti-kickback statute. Oh, okay. Yes. So you may all be very familiar with this, so I'll try not to bore you, but uh, basically the anti-kickback statute, and this is a federal criminal statute, it, um, it makes it a felony to uh, pay remuneration to another individual or, or entity in return for that individual or entity referring a federal health care program beneficiary uh, or purchasing a, an item that's reimbursed by a, a federal health care program. The bottom, the bottom line is this is a very broad criminal statute, and it's been interpreted uh, broadly by courts and by OIG. Uh, courts have adopted the one purpose test, which uh, holds that if even one purpose is to uh, induce referrals, then a payment's illegal, notwithstanding any uh, legitimate business purpose that may have been involved in the arrangement. Um, the interpretation of remuneration is also very broad. Um, it includes anything of value, so uh, it's not just cash bribes. Uh, uh, it can include uh, even 
providing another another um, provider or supplier with the ability to uh, bill for services they previously had not been able to bill for. So pretty much anything of value that's flowing between referral sources would be considered remuneration. Um, similarly, the idea of a referral is very broad um, and in fact includes bar marketing. So the OIG has said that uh, that marketing uh, staff are involved in recommending, recommending or arranging for the purchase of federal items and services and therefore when they generate uh, business for uh, a provider or supplier, they are technically making referrals that are covered by the anti-kickback statute to that provider or supplier. Uh, it, as previously stated, it does include non-clinicians. There's a, a misconception that you sometimes run across where um, folks believe that the anti-kickback statute only applies to providers or suppliers, but that in fact is not the case. And as stated before, even, even consultants and and marketers are considered to be uh, covered by the statute. Um, the, the statute does form the basis for civil liability, potentially, if there's a violation under the um, False Claims Act. And uh, violation is a felony. It is punishable by uh, substantial fines, um, up to five years imprisonment, uh, CMPs, and even exclusion. Uh, penalties apply to both sides of the arrangement, and there are state analogs that mirror the federal anti-kickback statute or sometimes deviate completely from it, but states have all, most states have, have adopted state kickback provisions um, that are either similar to or, or um, are identical to the federal anti-kickback statute. Oftentimes they are broader though, and we'll discuss that a bit more in a few minutes. There are a number of exceptions and safe harbors to the anti-kickback statute. If an arrangement falls within one of these exceptions or safe harbors, it is immunized from liability under the anti-kickback statute. Um, examples of, of well-known and, and frequently used safe harbors are the personal services and management contract safe harbor. This is really the only safe harbor that protects payments made to independent contractors. Um, bonafide employee safe harbor, it, this is a very broad safe harbor and it's uh, uh, somewhat different than the, the Stark, Stark law safe uh, exception that we'll discuss later in that it's, it's, it's broader than Stark. It only requires that an employee be uh, a bonafide employee in order for um, any payments to that individual to be uh, within the, uh, the regulatory safe harbor. There is an investment interest safe harbor. Um, this generally protects um, investments in uh, small investment interests uh, as long as uh, various requirements are met and notably uh, the two restrictions are that uh, referral sources can only own 40% interests in the entity and they can only generate 40% of the, the business. Uh, frequently used by hospitals are space and equipment rental safe harbors and a discount safe harbor. Uh, which protects discounts and rebates. Uh, I'll note briefly to the extent that any of the uh, participants are hospitals, hospital compliance officers, the discount safe harbor is, is somewhat in a, a state of uncertainty and there's uh, some uh, ongoing litigation that may uh, help us better understand what exactly the scope of the discount safe harbor is. Um, but generally for all of these, 
except the discount safe harbor. It's it's fairly broad, but for the others, um, you're going to need commercial reasonableness and fair market value in order to meet the safe harbor requirements. Uh, commercial reasonableness is somewhat of a fuzzy concept, but basically it means that legitimate services are being provided and that the recipient actually needs them. An example of uh, arrangements that are not commercially reasonable would be um, a single uh, company having uh, 25 medical director agreements, a small, a small company having 25 medical director agreements, where clearly it's the responsibilities are duplicative. Um, those would not be considered commercially reasonable and, and would likely not be, not only not be protected by a safe harbor, but would be problematic under the kickback statute. Uh, fair market value generally, uh, ideally I should say, uh, you would have, you would have obtained an uh, independent third party valuation to support any uh, compensation that's flowing between the parties. Uh, that's not always possible and so there are other ways to mitigate uh, or to, to mitigate risk and to, to help ensure that you your payments are within that fair market value range. Safe harbors are voluntary so if one does not apply it is not uh, it does not mean a violation of the anti-kickback statute has occurred. Uh, instead what the OIG does is it, what's necessary is an, an analysis of the totality of the facts and circumstances. And OIG has identified a number of factors that it looks, looks at when it's conducting this type of an, an analysis. Uh, clearly, the most important factors that it focuses on are overutilization over and increased federal health care program costs. There's, they're typically linked. Um, however, they, they don't always have to be. They are all, also have voiced concern for interfer interference with clinical decision making, uh, patient safety, freedom of choice, and unfair competition. With regard to overutilization, over the, the concern is that payments to a referral source will induce that person to uh, over-refer, you know, refer more, more cases there than they should, um, and that can lead to patient harm and also increased program costs. Uh, if you are outside a safe harbor, but you uh, can, can make an arrangement, meet as many of the material requirements of a safe harbor as possible. It's generally considered to lower the risk. Um, an example is uh, percentage-based compensation. Generally speaking, uh, percentage-based compensation is not protected by the personal services management contract safe harbor. Um, so for example, many management contracts for physician practices um, are based on a, the compensation to the manager is based on a percentage of revenue. Uh, those are not protected by a safe harbor, but there are other ways to, um, other requirements for that safe harbor that, that if, you, if you can structure the arrangement to, to meet will help reduce risk generally. Um, Summer, are you going to talk about the Stark Law? Yeah, absolutely. Stark Law is one that, you know, sort of puts, sort of puts you a little bit more on edge because Stark Law is strict liability. Um, you know, they don't look at the totality of the circumstances if you don't meet one of the exceptions. If you don't meet one of the exceptions, then you violate the, the Stark Law. The limiting um, factor with Stark Law, as you may be aware, is that it must involve a relationship with a physician who makes referrals to the other party to the transaction. Um, 
and those referrals are sort of somewhat limited to designated health services, VHS, um, as it's often referred to. So we're talking about things like inpatient and outpatient hospital services, labs, imaging, uh, DME, um, it, the list goes on, but that, that's just sort of the, the a brief overview of designated health services. So any relationship between a provider or supplier of designated health services and a physician needs to be structured to comply with one of the Stark Law exceptions. Um, often you see real estate leases, um, you know, hospital owns an office building and leases the space to a physician. Um, you see arrangements between physicians and labs. Um, trying to think of some other examples, medical director agreements between um, an imaging center or a lab and a physician or a hospital and a physician, um, even physician um, independent contractor arrangements with a provider or supplier of designated health services would, would need to be structured to fit within one of the Stark exceptions. In some cases, I think the Stark exceptions, um, you know, can be a little bit more giving than the anti-kickback safe harbor. But I mean, that's a good thing because we have to hit the Stark exceptions, whereas with the anti-kickback safe harbor that Nathan discussed, we have a little bit more leeway, um, you know, to get as close as we can or to um, otherwise structure the arrangement to minimize risks. Some of the popular Stark exceptions, uh, there's obviously one for publicly traded securities. Um, this is your um, your companies that are, that are traded on the stock exchange and that kind of thing. Um, Bonafide employment relationships, as we talked about, where physicians are actual employees and they have uh, fair market value compensation, among other requirements for the exception. Personal services arrangements, that's going to cover your um, some of your medical director agreements and uh, you know any personal services that are provided. Rental of office space and equipment, um, again, I think that most, most often comes into play where a hospital owns some piece of real estate that the physician practice is going to lease or occupy. Um, fair market value, similar to what Nathan was discussing. Ideally, especially when we're talking about stark and strict liability, we you know you want to feel comfortable that any compensation um, being paid is fair market value. And really, the only way to the best way to document that. Um, and, you know, some would argue the only definite way to document that is to, you know, to have somebody do an appraisal um, and to document fair market value for the given uh, relationship. That's not always possible, and, you know, that's one of those ways you can, you can try to mitigate your risk as much as possible, but you have a little less leeway in the Stark Law arena than you do under the kickback. And there's also indirect compensation arrangements, which is where you have, um, a third party involved. You've got a physician-owned entity or a hospital-owned entity that has a relationship with the physician. Uh, and there's there's other examples. That's not um, not all inclusive, but that's sort of at the top of at the top of the top of the list. And so you basically you're never going to have a direct arrangement between the provider of DHS and the doc, but you are going to have an indirect relationship always. There is an unbroken series of links between the physician and the provider or supplier of designated health services. And that, uh, those arrangements actually are unique and sort of in a class by themselves. There's actually, where you have indirect compensation arrangements, there's a specific exception there. 
I think that's something that's often can be confusing in, in the Stark arena is when you have an indirect arrangement, you're not your rest of your exceptions sort of fall to the side and you're looking at the indirect compensation exception to the Stark law. I think that's a, that's probably a good takeaway to um, about the Stark law to keep in mind. And that you must meet every requirement of a Stark exception. It's not get as close as you can or hey, there's a you know, there's an OIG advisory opinion favorably weighing in on this from a kickback perspective, okay, well, you know, that doesn't cover us from a Stark perspective. So you have to meet every prong of the Stark exception. And again, commercial reasonableness and fair market value um, are key here as well. Can you give anything else on Stark, Nathan? It, it's a civil penalty. You may have discussed this, but it's uh, unlike the anti-kickback statute, which is provides for criminal penalties, the Starks the Stark statute is civil liability and, and essentially the, the penalty is that uh, you may not submit claims for, that the prohibition is that you may not submit claims for reimbursement. So um, the effect of, of making a prohibited referral is that the parties have received an overpayment, but, but there's no criminal liability. And I think it's, that's a significant difference between uh, the anti-kickback statute and Stark, even though they, they often overlap. Yeah, remedies including exclusion as well. So there is that element being excluded from participation in Medicare and Medicaid. Moving on from Stark, just briefly here, the Civil Monetary Penalties Law is another uh, OIG remedy, administrative remedy. And I think I'm just going to focus on the beneficiary inducement component of it briefly. And, and basically what it, what this, what this uh, statute says is that uh, you cannot provide something of value to a Medicare Medicaid beneficiary to induce them to uh, select uh, you or another as their provider or supplier of services. And there is a, this most often comes up in the context of, of copayment waivers, but you'll also run into it um, with, uh, you know, some of these drug cards and, and whatnot. Uh, there's a, a nominal value exception. I believe it's $15 for each individual gift and $75 in the aggregate per year. Um, that that is it, the threshold recently was raised by by OIG, but it does allow for some um, gifts or or items of value to be given to beneficiaries for free. Um, but the bottom line with with the um, the CMP law is that it's not governed by the rules of civil procedure or evidence, so it's it's uh, perhaps a little bit easier for OIG to to um, to enforce than, than having to go through with the, you know, a full kickback uh, violation. It also deals with kickbacks as well, so. Something you want to talk about, False yeah. Claims Act? I think most of us are fairly familiar with False Claims Act generally and, and false and fraudulent claims, but I think I wanted to sort of highlight the, what is known as the Reverse False Claims Act, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a particularly relevant from a compliance perspective. I have seen this come up in several different contexts. You know, one can be simply having a credit balance on your, um, you know, on your books that Medicare's overpaid in some way, and, and just you know, figuring it'll even out eventually as payments come in, and you know, that is an overpayment, and it by law has to be refunded within 60 days of the identification of the overpayment. Um, but I think more often, um, I guess where, where we come from and where I think compliance probably. Um, 
compliance probably runs into this is where you have, let's say you discover that you have incorrectly billed for something. I mean, I, you know, you have been coding for something that should have been included in another procedure code or billed by a different, um, a different person in the supplier or provider network. You know, you not only have to identify that and, you know, you got to return the money, um, and you know there's there's some ways to buy yourself some more time. But it but it, it the Reverse False Claims Act officially says when you identify that problem and that overpayment, you have to go ahead and return that money, or else it becomes a Reverse False Claim. So I think that's something that was uh, part of the um, Affordable Care Act. So that's still somewhat new, and there you know there's been some clarifying guidance that's been issued over the last couple of years. So just something to point out. Um, as we talk about the enforcement environment currently. So states have their own set of fraud and abuse laws that apply, so you have to consider uh, more than just the federal statutes. Uh, and these vary from state to state. Uh, so for example, most states have anti-kickback statutes. Um, they range from Medicaid only, which essentially does nothing to expand the, the, the reach of the federal statute. Um, some apply to commercial payers, some apply to all payers, including cash-paying patients. Um, so you get, uh, in many states, a broader, a broader kickback prohibition under state law than you do under federal, um, because remember, the, the federal anti-kickback statute only applies if it involves items or, or services that are reimbursed by Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, or another federal health care program. Um, these State kickback prohibitions appear in a variety of places uh, from physician licensure statutes or, or other professional licensure um, statutes and regulations to um, insurance codes. Uh, and, and so it's, it can be somewhat difficult and, and frequently there are overlapping um, provisions in a particular state, so it can be somewhat difficult to interpret how, um, how these different state kickback prohibitions in a particular state um, interact with one another. Um, some have safe harbors, some don't mention safe harbors at all, and so um, it's, it can be difficult to determine the scope of the prohibition generally because uh, these, if they're, if they're mirroring the uh, federal anti-kickback statute, the language is so broad that it would cover many, many arrangements that even in the healthcare context um, would be uh, considered legal and uh, under the federal anti-kickback statute. So I guess this, this kind of ties in with the, the final comment I'll make. Um, these statutes are enforced um, in, inconsistently, I'll, I'll say. In, in some states, uh, the kickback prohibitions are rarely enforced and other, state, other states are quite active. Um, so it's, it's a special Special care has to be taken when, when trying to determine how much risk is exactly involved under, under state kickback prohibition. Generally speaking, I think attorneys take the position that if an arrangement is, is, is permitted under the federal anti-kickback statute, and let's say it's an arrangement that fits within a federal safe harbor, clearly, uh, that there's little risk under, the, under applicable state law, but that, has to be, that analysis needs to be conducted on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, they, uh, states also have uh, mini-Stark laws, which are similar to the federal 
stark prohibition, um, but they can be broader or narrower um, as well, uh, and they can uh, they can include commercial payers, they can include uh, items and services that are outside um, the definition of designated health services. Uh, some of them, some of these uh, many stark laws merely require disclosure of the the physician's uh, arrangement or or interest in the uh, the entity that he's referring to, he or she is referring to. Um, so those are those warrant consideration. Uh, additionally, some of those uh, self-referral prohibitions are baked into the licensure statutes. So uh, you have to be careful that um, that a board, a state board, doesn't come and, and start asking uh, asking questions about a prohibited arrangement. Uh, additionally, workers' comp commercial bribery, consumer protection, and false claims laws need to be considered under, under state law. All right. You may have heard about sort of a um, change in tides in the enforcement of um, the anti-kickback statute, and, and that involves some recent um, Federal Tribal Act um, enforcement actions where um, they used a, a federal statute, um, it's here on the, on the slide, the anti-racketeering statute, to basically um, work their way in and enforce some particular state laws. Um, in a recent case in Texas, they were commercial bribery state laws. Um, so it has sort of, um, sort of changed the landscape in some ways uh, for those providers that um, typically function outside of the government payer context. Um, you know, we don't take Medicare and Medicaid, so we're, you know, we're outside of, um, outside of the realm. So that, you know, it just has sort of been, everyone's still trying to wrap their head around exactly what all this means and um, changes that are, that are coming down the road um, as a result of this. But the Forest Park case was a physician-owned out-of-network hospital, and the government looked really closely at communications that were involved. Um, you know, basically the hospital was paying a lot of money to docs, and under the agreement with the physicians, they had the boilerplate language that said this payment is not intended to compensate you for referrals and that kind of thing. But they looked outside of those contracts and they looked at emails that had been sent that basically said your projections have fallen, you know, short of what we originally anticipated, and they looked at um, communications that were sent along with checks that basically showed a list of referrals that had been sent, that kind of thing. They looked really closely at communications, and I think that's definitely a takeaway is to, to guard those communications. They're not, you know, they're, they can really come back to, come back to cause problems. Um, but they also, <laughs> despite the fact that this hospital didn't take any government payers, um, they ended up with significant um, significant claims paid because of federal payers that slipped through the cracks. And I kind of want to give some examples of how this happened because I hear it time and again, and, and I'm sure Nathan does as well from clients. Oh, we don't take any government payers, so you know we are not worried about that. They basically these people can come in with United Aetna Cigna insurance cards because um, those those commercial um, Insurance companies also serve as third-party administrators for various government entities. 
a third-party administrator is not actually the insurance provider, but they, you know, send out the bills and they handle the paperwork for some of the school districts, um, employee, uh, school district employees, cities, municipalities, that kind of thing, and some of those can um, give rise to government payer-like claims under the anti-kickback statute. And so you think you're not taking government payers, but that United and Aetna card that you just took, you know, is linked to a government employer. They also, um, the Federal Employee Compensation Act is a federally funded healthcare program for uh, civilian employees of the U.S. government. And that was one that uh, had been had snuck through the cracks a in a couple of places at Forest Park. Obviously, there's Tricare, and there's other federal employee health benefits program. The federal employee health benefits program for federal employees and their families. The federal employees health benefits program contracts with a lot of different insurance plans to pay claims on their behalf. You know, in, in the third-party administrator context, so they're not easily recognized as government payers. They don't have a Medicare card. You know, they don't have a Tricare, um, a Tricare card. So I think. Um, that's something to definitely take from Forest Park. Um, in the end, Forest Park uh, agreed to pay $475,000 uh, to settle kickback allegations related to TRICARE and um, the Federal Employee Compensation Act referrals. There's also been a number of indictments of the different positions that were involved, and those are at various stages um, in enforcement. I mean, it's be impossible, I think, in this call for us to go um, to go over all of those. But Forest Park is just one. I mean, it's not a one-off case. There are other examples where the Travel Act um, has been enforced, has been used to enforce uh, healthcare fraud and abuse laws. Yeah. Um, recently, the Biodiagnostic Laboratory Services uh, enforcement actions have have. Um, Really resulted in significant convictions. I mean, more than 50 convictions and 36 positions um, from one scheme operated by a lab. And, and the bottom line is there were sham arrangements um, whereby the lab was was funneling money to these physicians to order blood tests, blood panels from the lab, and it resulted. In, it has resulted in a number of the the lab itself, and then. It, a number of positions uh, pleading guilty to um, conspiracy and then violations under the Travel Act. Uh, in, you know, recently there was a physician, a 79-year-old physician, was sentenced to over three years in prison as a, as, a, as a result of his role in this this uh, scheme. So it's been this um, this enforcement has been uh, cited as you know one of the larger uh, Travel Act enforcement uh, examples that exists. Uh, similarly, there's a, the Pacific Hospital case in California uh, involving a hospital that paid uh, millions of dollars uh, to physicians and others for referrals, um, including something ten thousand dollars per surgeon per surgery that was referred, and other fifteen thousand for lumbar fusion and ten thousand for cervical fusion surgery. So, I mean, it, it was a lot of money. I believe in, in one in one case, the physician received. A uh, total of 2.1 million dollars. Um, there were sham arrangements that allowed this money to flow um, between the parties, um, as well as uh, the the hospital had a other entities, a management company that set up 
many pharmacies in the physician in physician offices that allowed the physicians to bill for for pharmaceuticals. So it was a pretty it was a very broad and, and wide ranging um, business that was ultimately the subject of the enforcement, and it um, has resulted in a number of, of convictions. Um, the former CFO, um, an orthopedic surgeon, a chiropractor have all pled guilty um, in part because of Travel Act violations. So, um, again, as Summer was saying, this is not a this is not a um, an outlier. You know, the, there's a there are a series of cases, and the government will use the Travel Act um, when perhaps they don't have a sufficient leverage because of um, uh, minimal federal healthcare program business. They will use the Travel Act to try to uh, uh, charge individuals and, and, and entities under federal law um, using state law kickback violations. So really getting into the private enforcement um, aspect of this, of this uh, presentation, uh, there are a number of ways that private enforcement occurs. Um, and that is private enforcement of, of uh, fraud and abuse laws. Uh, obviously, the best example are KETAMs, which is a whistleblower suit filed under the False Claims Act. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. Uh, other examples include uh, providers and suppliers using um, state law or illegality, not, not necessarily under state law, but using illegality generally to defend um, in breach of contract suits. So the example here is from uh, uh, 20 years ago, but uh, a DME supplier hired a, a marketer and didn't want to pay him. And when the marketer sued for breach of contract, the DME supplier said, I, you know, we can't, we can't make this payment because it would be illegal to do so. And uh, ultimately, a Florida appeals court agreed. And so they got, a, they got out of that contract simply based on a percentage-based marketing arrangement. There are, there's a growing trend of commercial payers suing providers to uh, recoup uh, payments that they allege were the result of a, uh, resulted from a referral that was a violation of a state uh, kickback uh, prohibition or out, an out, in some way an out-of-network um, arrangement. And when I discuss out-of-network, for those who aren't familiar, Basically, what I'm, I'm referring to is a provider or supplier that's not within a private a private payers network, and, but who you know where the private payers plan requires them to cover um, out of network services. Typically, these services are reimbursed at a much higher rate. Um, but with that comes uh, significant cost sharing obligations on the part of the patient, uh, which in the Subsequent cases we're going to discuss uh, those the patient responsibility aspect uh, becomes a part of the basis for the the suit. Uh, so, for example, there's a couple of Aetna suits here. Um, the first is is against uh, a network of uh, ambulatory surgical centers in California, and um, Aetna claimed uh, alleged of a variety of, of uh, state law violations. And, uh, and causes of action. But the bottom line was it was an out-of-network billing and kickback scheme where 
a business that was out of network wanted allegedly wanted to get uh, higher reimbursement as an out of network provider but couldn't get patients in. So they allegedly paid physicians and waived patient copayments in order to um, induce referrals and then to get patients to come in and, and actually um, uh, receive the services from an out of network provider. Otherwise, they'd have to pay a substantial out of pocket cost. Um, so in this case, uh, a California jury awarded tens of millions of dollars in damages to, um, to Aetna um, based on state law, anti-kickback violations, and, and also um, fraud, insurance fraud uh, type of, uh, of claims. Uh, the basic idea there is that um, uh, when you're submitting claims with exaggerated uh, costs or charges to, to payers, even as an out-of-network provider, um, it violates some state uh, prohibition on submitting fraudulent claims to payers. Uh, a pretty large, or at least it received a, lar a lot of publicity, large case in Texas was Aetna versus Humble Surgical Hospital. This was a small five-bedroom hospital outside of Houston, and it was out of network. Um, and uh, it, it, it entered into a, a several, multiple arrangements with physicians physician-owned um, shell companies and paid them a portion of the facility fees that the that Humble received uh, for services referred by the, the physician owner and ostensibly it was under some sort of a billing uh, services arrangement but in reality Humble's staff were the ones who were uh, performing the billing services. Um, ultimately uh, in this case Aetna was awarded 41.4 million dollars which essentially bankrupted Humble. And um, it's worth noting Humble had prevailed in a similar lawsuit brought by Cigna, um, but the court here in the Southern District of Texas did not appear uh, too uh, impressed with the way that hum Humble had responded to some of the discovery requests and it had conducted itself during the, the litigation, so that may have been a factor in this, in this case. Uh, you all may know that, about uh, some of the class actions that are ongoing regarding beneficiaries suing commercial payers, um, but the bottom line is that they are, um, the patients are suing commercial payers for uh, charging copay, exorbitant copay costs and, and um, other practices. Mission toxicology is another out-of-network um, case uh, here you have a, it's actually, I'm, I'm sorry, it's an in-network case. You have a hospital that is an in-network hospital with um, with a reimbursement that's based on a percentage of the, the, uh, the hospital's charges, which is different than uh, normal hospital reimbursement, which is based on a, uh, a DRG, uh, and that's because it was a small rural hospital. And uh, suddenly it starts submitting, and, and in, uh, let's see, February of 2016, it starts submitting uh, claims, and by May 2017, it had submitted an astronomical $30 million worth of claims, and then had been reimbursed $9.8 million, all for laboratory services. And um, when Blue, Blue Cross's suit alleged that, or alleges that um, what, what the hospital was doing was allowing a couple of Texas laboratories to uh, submit claims using the hospital's name and billing number. 
uh, for lab services that are performed in Texas um, and not at the hospital. And uh, it, this is an ongoing suit, so it's hard to tell how it's going to turn out, but um, this is a good example of how, you know, in contrast to out-of-network arrangements where uh, providers are trying to overcome some of the financial barriers to, um, to providing services, uh, in this case, the laboratory wanted to uh, gain access to payer to, re to private reimbursement by using a hospital's uh, provider number. And uh, Blue Cross has objected primarily due to this, the sheer volume of the um, claims that were submitted. And these laboratory arrangements are, are pretty prolific, so some of you may be familiar with it. I think I'll skip the Ask Gary uh, portion. Cigna has also sued. Um, again, this was um, fee forgiveness, so patients were not uh, required to pay their cost-sharing obligations. Uh, I believe this was or toxicology screening. I could be wrong, but um, again, it's an out-of-network lab situation, very similar to the previous Aetna cases we discussed. Um, another United versus Sky Toxicology. I think that you all are getting the point here that um, the, the key is that uh, arrangements that feel questionable or that, that are, you know, where, where, for example, you are taking advantage of out-of-network um, higher reimbursement, um, and, and that is the business model, is to bill out-of-network as much as possible, can run afoul or, and can't get you into trouble with private payers. Uh, I suppose, arguably, some of these arrangements could get you into trouble under the Travel Act of the federal government, but I don't know that that's been tested. Um, and I think that overall, what we're, we're looking at here is uh, greater involvement by the federal government in enforcing federal law based on state law violations and more involvement of private payers in taking the law into their own hands, whether it's litigation or whether it's approaching the federal government and exposing um, arrangements that are questionable. And believe me, private payers know uh, they receive information from competitors on a regular basis as to what the uh, bad actors in a particular network are doing. So they know, they know um, what arrangements, what questionable arrangements are in their network and what they look like in the details. And they may use that information to approach state licensure boards, the federal government, uh, state attorneys general, and um, lobby them to initiate enforcement action. Uh, but, the, but the key is that um, no longer do you have to only worry about the federal government, DOJ and OIG um, sniffing around. There is a real risk of private payer um, action and of violations being cited that are based on private payer claims. So uh, if anybody would like to ask any questions, we'd be happy to answer them. We're done with the, the primary portion of this um, presentation. Okay. Um, this, is, this is Catherine. Um, we did have a few uh, questions. Um, so um, the first one we had was, um, 
was uh, uh, similar to something that was brought up, I think, by uh, Summer. Um, so this question said, we screen out all government patients. Um, doesn't that mean we are safe as far as Stark and anti-kickback statutes are concerned? Well, and I think that um, the easy answer to that is possibly. You know, if you truly are screening them all out, then yes. But I just in, in reality, that's hard to do. Like we said, they're disguised as your Cigna and Aetna uh, cardholders when they come in, and it's, it's almost impossible to know. And, and it's not, you know, the OIG has said that um, carve-out arrangements can violate the federal anti-kickback statute. And I guess the simple way of putting it is, if there are any federal referrals within between two parties, and the parties establish an arrangement that only covers commercial uh, patients, it could still implicate the federal anti-kickback statute. The, the idea being that um, you might, uh, the parties might use that private payer arrangement to funnel money that is actually a payment for referrals of federal business. So I think in looking at it from a kickback perspective, you'd want to you'd consider whether or not an arrangement has, or uh, the parties to an arrangement have any federal referrals between them, and then you could, you would need to, to consider liability under the, the kickback statute and take take at, take steps to mitigate risk. Um, the Stark the Stark law is a little different than than the anti-kickback statute, and uh, as a general rule, carving out is not as controversial. But in the in the kick in the anti under the anti-kickback statute, it can be much more controversial. Right, I think that kind of goes to the whole, they're going to look at the totality of the circumstances. I mean, if you have a contract in front of you between two parties that, you know, carves out all the federal payers, but then there's another side arrangement, um, you know, where those federal patients are flowing between two related entities or, you know, indirectly through a third party entity to um, one of the parties to the agreement. I mean, you know, it, 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 they look at the whole situation, so there's unfortunately not just an easy yes or no answer to that. but. I think, yeah, you're right, I did point out some of those other um, categories that can fall under the government beneficiaries that we sometimes don't think about. And it's, it's worth noting that carving out doesn't work when, when the allegation is a violation of, of uh, a state anti-kickback statute or other state fraud and abuse prohibition or insurance fraud prohibition. So um, carve-outs are losing their, their luster. And for a long time, they were considered to be, um, by, by some, to be a way around um, potential liability. And it's obvious now that, that that is no longer the case. And just just further to that, you know, many of the state equivalents of the anti-kickback and uh, Stark apply regardless of the payer source. So, I mean, they don't, you know, carving out federal or state payers, has, you know, has no bearing on any enforcement under the state statute. And also, like we talked about, I mean, the federal government getting, um, through the Travel Act, finding a way to enforce state law claims for commercial bribery or that kind of thing. If you're paying someone, you know, for referrals, that could be bribery under state law, and the federal government has, you know, like we said, been enforcing that. So I just overall, that's sort of, I think, the general theme is that carving out just doesn't get you where you might have once thought it got you from a risk uh, mitigation perspective. Okay, very good, very good. Doesn't sound very um, cut and dry. Then sounds um, much more, much more nuanced. But then, um, 
Okay, so the second question that we had come in was, um, what can we do to minimize our risk in this enforcement environment? Well, I think that it, really the key, there's two components to it. Uh, the first is to prospectively um, structure arrangements so that they min minimize risk under any applicable fraud and abuse statute, whether it's federal or state. The most um, significant ones and traditionally the ones that are considered the most are the, the, the federal anti-kickback statute and the, and the uh, federal Stark law. Um, properly structuring an arrangement is essential to um, controlling risk, but equally important, and I, you know that's I'm sure that everyone on this call knows this, equally important is the ongoing compliance function. Um, I, I, many, many enforcement actions involve uh, arrangements that may have been perfectly uh, or perfectly legal or at least low risk um, when they were initiated. And then over time, uh, the relationship evolves and practices change. And um, suddenly, when the government starts to look into things, the arrangement looks much different. Um, physicians are being paid uh, off, off contract. Uh, all sorts of benefits are being given to referral sources that weren't contemplated by the original arrangement. And it's sort of a, a creature of, of uh, time and inertia. But uh, so I think the, you know, structuring an arrangement appropriately is, is not enough. You have to have uh, compliance, uh, a compliance function that takes into account uh, ongoing review and uh, monitoring of arrangements to ensure that they, they stay compliant. Summer, did you have anything to add? I don't think so. I mean, just the, the recurring theme that, you know, your compliance program really has to be in effect and a part of the culture and, you know, ingrained in the everyday um, as you look at not just a piece of paper and not just at an agreement that might come before, you know, come in front of you as a compliance professional, but from a broader perspective, overall, you know, a series of agreements, a series of arrangements, things that are coming to you that may be outside of an agreement and, and kind of trying to put together the whole piece of the puzzle because that's what, that's what the government's doing. Any more questions? Um, I think I think that's about all the time that we have for questions right now. So um, thank you so much, Nathan and Summer. So um, so thank you to Nathan and Summer, um, Nathan Fish and Summer Hayes from Greenberg and Trowick. Um, so um, we have their contact information here on the screen. There's um, Summer's. Um, contact information and then we have um, Nathan's um, contact information there as well so you can use their contact information on the screen for any questions and if you have um, questions as well we can forward them on uh, you can register for any future webinars or request a demo for our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888 Five four three four seven seven eight, and thank you so much for joining us.